0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu.
1: Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, do corporate boycotts even work? All right, let's start the show.
2: You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. And today we're talking boycotts, a certain kind of boycott. So late last month, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican, he signed this huge overhaul of election laws in Georgia. Critics say these new rules are meant to suppress the vote, especially in communities of color, communities that helped turn Georgia blue in 2020. Reaction to this voting law in Georgia has been swift. You might have heard by now. This has led some pretty major corporations to get involved in this fight. Since Governor Kemp signed that voting law, Major League Baseball moved this year's All-Star game from Atlanta to Denver.
0: Commissioner Rob Manfred writing, The decision will demonstrate our values as a sport. Major League Baseball fundamentally supports voting rights for all Americans and opposes restrictions to the ballot box.
2: And Coca-Cola and Delta, both based in Georgia, they also came out harshly against this law.
3: Signing an open letter avowing their nonpartisan commitment to equality and democracy.
2: But the thing I keep wondering whenever corporations take stances on issues like a voting bill is whether that really works, whether it really ultimately changes anything. And I also wonder why these days it feels like we're more likely to see a corporate boycott than boycotts that feel a bit more grassroots. I'm thinking MLK and the Montgomery bus boycott from decades ago. You know, things that started with the people. To answer those questions and a few more, I called up Dahlia Lithwick. She writes about the courts and the law for Slate. And she hosts a legal podcast called Amicus. One of her most recent articles is called The Problem with Boycotting Georgia. And it looks at this bigger picture of corporate activism. So MLK was asking people to do things together, collectively. And I don't know, it just feels different when it's the MLB doing these things. Should we look at these things differently? Right.
3: So what I'm hearing in your voice is it feels a little hinky when a corporation (laughs) is doing it. And I think that's right. And I think there's a couple of layers. One is, I think the thing you're flicking at, Sam, which is it feels performative, right? It feels like an exercise in branding. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it also feels, I think if you kind of put it in the context of the other ways that corporations... Try to affect policy, you have to think about the fact that the other ways they do it are um, making huge campaign donations, right? And so all of these To
2: both parties.
3: Exactly. So the way they hedge their bets is they donate to both parties in equal amounts, and then uh, they can say they're not partisan, but you know, the same Coca-Cola that is now, you know, talking about decrying Georgia's law gave, you know, 793. $4,000 $4,000 to the Georgia Democratic Party, uh, 848000 to the Republican Party, right? Delta did oh, wow. the same. So, I mean, I just think we should be really clear that some of the same entities donated to Brian Kemp's mm. gubernatorial run, to some of the uh-huh. state senators. So you're right to say this looks like what's happening on the outside is really fundamentally different from the sausage making uh. on the inside.
2: Uh. It seems as if I haven't seen an actual real grassroots MLK bus boycott style boycott in a while. Do those still happen as much, or is the energy of the boycott moving more into corporate spaces?
3: You know, it's interesting. I was just in preparing for this conversation, reading about the faith leaders and what they're doing. Um, and these are, you know, leaders who are are horrified by the Georgia, this omnibus voting law. And interestingly one of the things they're doing is lobbying the corporations. So it's it's right now huh. they are in fact in conversation with Delta and with Coca-Cola and actually some other Georgia-based businesses in conversation about whether uh, the boycotts should proceed. So I think in a in a funny way at least the faith communities that are organizing around this seem to be organizing to leverage the corporations, which really? is really different from what you and I are thinking about in the civil yeah. rights era. And I think folded into that, we would have to also note that Stacey Abrams has come out saying, thank you. I, I like where your impulse is, but please don't remove business from the state because of the vulnerable mm. minorities that are hurt most uh, are not going to be well served. So I think some of that ambivalence uh, that you're kind of leading from is really leeching into how the organizing is working, too.
2: Yeah. Do these things work? You know, in your Slate piece, you write about all these previous examples in the last few years of these corporate boycotts happening across the country. Pound for pound, do they work?
3: Yeah, you know, it was one of the things that I was really trying to think about was we know some of these have been really successful. And notably, Mike Pence had signed this quote-unquote religious freedom bill in 2015 in Indiana that would have allowed Businesses to challenge local laws that force them to d- serve gay customers. And this caused such a national outcry. You may remember that the NCAA, headquartered in Indianapolis, uh, started pushing back, and there was an immense kind of corporate pushback. And as a result, Pence ended up signing a really watered down version of that law. And we saw similar big, big boycotts around North Carolina's, you, you remember the bathroom bans that would have barred transgender folks from using the bathroom aligned to their own gender identities. That also uh, resulted in massive corporate boycotts. But the the reason I'm a little bit dubious that they work is even in those states where they work out, it ignores the Mm. fact that similar or worse bills then pass in other states and we don't notice it. I'm sort of Suggesting that I think if we look at these as one-off state-by-state endeavors, then sort of hyper-focusing on Coca-Cola and Major League Baseball and these dumb conversations about cancel culture means we've taken our eyes off Texas and New Hampshire and the other states where they're actually sailing through the state legislatures and nobody's clocking it.
2: What I hear you saying is, let's make sure to look for the forest in the midst of all these individual trees.
3: That's what I'm saying, and I'm also saying, and I think this is where you started this idea that corporations are going to save us a little bit elides the <laughs> reality of how <laughs> kind of opportunistic you know, corporate performance of goodwill can be. And so, I still
2: remember all of the like statements after George Floyd's death, and I just it's like I still feel icky about like every company under the sun, you know performing uh, support for black lives, it's just weird sometimes, no, a lot that's of the time.
3: so right. And I think that one of the things that we can say about Coca-Cola and Delta uh, is that they had such strong statements after George Floyd and yet still were really silent about this legislation until mm. they pivoted on a dime last week and started mm. to... So I think that, you know, it, this sounds so cynical, but I think we're agreeing Looking to corporations to have the best interest of poor and minority <laughs> voters front and center, like no, their 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 interests are in shareholders, you know, their shareholders and selling product, and so I just think if these corporate bands can focus attention and can. Allow us to have a meaningful conversation about vote suppression, about what did and didn't go wrong in the 2020 election, on why it is that poor and minority communities are so out of proportion affected by some of these provisions. That's useful, and I'm for that. But I just don't think we should have illusions that there's a beating heart of gold under Coca-Cola.com Corporation Incorporated trademark.
2: But the slogans are so sweet, (laughs) (laughs) Dahlia. Thanks again to Dahlia Lithwick. She writes about the courts and the law for Slate. She is also the host of the legal podcast, Amicus. All right, coming up, another type of bill moving through state houses right now. Anti-trans bills. We talk about what that means for trans kids.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics, Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
4: On NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we talk about movies, music, and more. Like why the Great Pottery Throwdown is a comforting binge watch. And a look back at some of Chadwick Boseman's essential performances. All of that in around 20 minutes every weekday. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.
2: So we've been talking about a voting law in Georgia that has been drawing national attention. But turns out very similar voting bills are moving through state houses across the country. And in a lot of those cases, a small handful of national political groups write the templates for all these bills to be used from state to state. And that same thing, it's happening right now on another issue, the rights of trans kids. In 2021... There have been more anti-trans bills introduced by state legislators than any year before.
1: We're up to 80 or 90 proposed bills in over 25 states. That is historian and author Jules gill peterson She says these bills pretty much fall into two categories. One is a kind of bill about uh, youth participation in sports, in public education, in K-12.
0: This important piece of legislation will ensure that young girls in Mississippi have a fair level playing field in public school
1: sports. And the other is um, bills that propose to ban or even in some cases criminalize the delivery of health care, gender affirming health care.
4: Arkansas, now the first state to ban gender conforming medical treatments for transgender minors. State lawmakers overrode a veto from the state. Jewel
2: says there's nothing new about this avalanche of bills. They're similar to earlier iterations of Republican wedge issues, anti-gay laws, anti-abortion laws. These new bills, they treat trans kids as if they've never been seen before. But trans kids aren't new either. You had a piece in the New York Times recently that really spelled out the ways in which, if you look throughout our history, trans youth have always been around. (laughs) And... So if these issues aren't new, and if children experiencing these things aren't new, why now? Why this push now? Why 80 to 90 bills now?
1: You know, we're living through this moment where trans people are culturally quite visible, much more visible than Mm. they were 10 years ago. And that includes Mm. trans youth. You can turn on the TV and see trans characters on teen shows, right? And so I can see how people might Um, mistake that new cultural visibility for the idea that trans children themselves are new or that we don't really know that much about them, that this is somehow a new generational question. And so I see, Mm. you know, a lot of the times when I point out that acts actually completely untrue. And if we look back historically, we can see plenty of evidence of trans children actually living trans childhoods, transitioning, Mm. socially transitioning and medically transitioning as far back as the 1930s and forties. A lot of people reply, well, yes, but there's never been this many trans kids as there are today, and that's the real problem, right? But also, how do they know? How do they know, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just a definitionally transphobic answer, right? If you think it's okay for some people to be trans, but we should have as few as possible, you actually just don't support trans people. But more importantly, like the answer to that question is really obvious. It has nothing to do with medicine. It's just that it's slightly less dangerous and slightly less invisible to be trans today. And the internet exists. So young people can, Mm. you know, learn about trans identity um, more easily than they used to be able to. That's the only reason why we see more children. Identifying publicly as trans, but it doesn't mean there are more trans children. That's the kind of mistake that I think people are making and that these anti-trans crusaders are also peddling that message to try and undermine the reality of of trans youth.
2: I'm just hearing you explain some of this logic. It's like that kind of logic, that kind of narrative. Yeah, it is tacitly saying we don't want any of them around if you can say that there are too many of them around, right?
1: Exactly. And it's almost an, an argument lifted Uh, Word for word from anti-lesbian and gay political movements 20 or 30 years ago, starting in the 1980s and 90s, you know, oh, well, too many children are going to turn out gay. Right. It's the exact same logic. It's just there's this convenient straw man or foil. It's like, yeah, if you stop and break down the argument, it's just discrimination. Yeah.
2: So you mentioned there are 80 or 90 bills right now targeting trans youth. Are they all popping up organically or is there some sort of concerted effort, some puppet master with these bills?
1: We've seen this kind of strategy, legislative strategy before from the conservative movement. uh, When it's really hard to uh, make gains at the national level because policies are unpopular, Uh, often, you know, state level GOP politicians will turn to cultural wedge issues and essentially try to pass a whole series of identical bills You know, more or less knowing that they're not going to be implemented. This is the fundraising strategy for the GOP in the lead up to the 2022 midterms. And we know that. In part because the bills are basically all templates of one another. A lot of them are written um, through focus groups and seminars by uh, leading conservative groups like the Family Research Council, which has been very actively involved, for example, in Arkansas, or the Alliance Defending Freedom, a right-wing group that helped pass and is now defending a bill In court in Idaho, these are sort of the marching orders. So it's very clearly part of a broader political strategy that's sort of getting executed at the state level because that's where the GOP tends to have more, you know, for example, veto-proof majorities in certain states. They can actually get legislation passed.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the president of a socially conservative group, Penny Nance, she was quoted in this Politico piece recently Saying of these bills targeting trans kids, this is the wedge issue that will bring suburban women back to the polls and increase their support for Republicans. And Republicans would be foolish not to lean into it. You know, we've said this phrase wedge issue already in this conversation. But when something is called a wedge issue, what does that mean exactly politically
1: yeah, you know, I've seen that wedge issue frame come up a lot in the reporting, too, that, oh, this suddenly is the new cultural wedge issue. And I have to take a little bit of an issue with that because transphobia has been a popular policy for quite a while. And, you know, in the lead up to the legalization of same-sex marriage, trans activists warned the movement that in such a narrow focus on one legal issue we would be left vulnerable and the most vulnerable people in our communities would be scapegoated and would be next. And yet we were told, too bad, you have to wait your turn. We'll deal with trans rights next. And yet here we are. So I have to say, you know, in, in response to that person's comment, advocates of trans youth are middle class uh, mothers, actually. They're parents. Uh, really? and so, yeah, that's just because they're the ones that have the time and the resources to advocate for mm. their kids and navigate the really mm. complicated bureaucratic and healthcare system. So I actually, am not convinced that it's a winning play. I think it might appeal to the base, but the Republican base doesn't really seem to be suburban women, at least not in the last five to eight years. So, you know, I'm sort of suspicious about whether that statement is even true, but, but I don't doubt that that is the intention. And, you know, once again, it's like, these cards are being laid down. It's really obvious what's going on. So even if folks are not 100% sure they understand you know, as well as they would like to, the ins and outs of trans identity or trans childhood, they can look at the actions of these political actors. They can listen to their statements. They can see the content of these bills and what they will lead to. I think, unfortunately, whatever the measure of political success is on the side of people proposing these bills, the fallout and the loss for the people affected by them is going to happen regardless.
2: Mm. Thanks again to my guest, Jules gill peterson you can find her work at J-G-I-L-L-Peterson.com. All right, coming up, I have two friends of the show bring you some TV recommendations. They also play my favorite game, Who Said That? Stay with us.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel.
5: My greatest hope for the Voices of
0: Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. TeleDoc Health understands whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight. TeleDoc Health can help. Visit TeleDocHealth.com/slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T E L A D O C Health slash What's Your Why.
2: Are you an audacious entrepreneur with a world-changing idea? Then join us this May for the virtual How I Built This Summit hosted by me. We'll have interviews with some of the best-known entrepreneurs out there. We'll offer community-building sessions to meet other creative thinkers like you. Thanks to GoDaddy, the presenting sponsor of the How I Built This Summit. For more information, head to summit.npr.org. So have you noticed just how much your TV viewing habits have changed over the course of the pandemic? I, for one, am watching more. And the longer we've all been stuck at home, I have found myself increasingly watching anything. On top of that, new streaming platforms keep popping up, giving us more new and old TV to watch. Like HBO Max, that platform debuted a few months ago, but recently it brought the 90s sitcom The Nanny to its service. And my next guest is currently hooked on that show.
5: I'm probably tweeting about the show one-third as much as I want <laughs>
2: That is Saeed Jones. He's an author and poet. There's actually an interview with him way back in this podcast feed for his latest book, How We Fight for Our Lives.
4: Saeed, I want HBO to write you a check because so many people have brought up Fran Drescher to me because of your tweets. It's true. And
2: my other guest is Zach Stafford. He's a writer, journalist, and former host of the podcast BuzzFeed Daily. I called them both up to play around round of Who Said That? But first, we talked Pandemic TV for a bit, and I had them both offer up their best Pandemic binge watches. I want us to get to our game, but before that, I want both of you to make a case for the TV you're loving right now to our listeners. Saeed, you gotta make a case to our listening public on why they should be watching The Nanny right now, as you are.
5: Flutch be trying to sell you on Game of Thrones, just to be contrary. Um... <laughs> I think, you know, The Nanny was ahead of its time and like so many things. You don't things, hear that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I think that. And I think like like a lot of things in the 90s, I think what the message a lot of us received about the show was that it was about a tacky, loud, obnoxious, dumb woman. And the show isn't that. It's a romantic comedy. She's very good at her job, actually. She's really great at raising those kids. She's funny. She's (laughs) sexy. If you like Golden Girls, if you like Living Single, like the nanny, like the way it talks about sex and desire, like is is in that space. It's very bold. There was just like so much that I was like, oh, wow, this show was really being written off in a way now that I'm like, oh, I, I love this. And they're like five seasons. Like get into it. You'll love it. I don't trust people who don't love it if they give it a chance now.
2: Oh, you heard it first (laughs) from Zahid Jones. Zach, make a case for the TV that you're binging right now.
4: Fran Drescher is perfect. I think she's just incredible. So I will say that. But Billions is – if you are currently confused around like NFTs, financial markets, and all the drama of billionaires, watch Billions because it actually is created by – Reporters who worked reporting on billionaires doing bad things. And I also love that we went through the last four years of not seeing a lot of accountability in mm. politics and in law, mm. and the show's obsessed with accountability. Yeah.
2: Look at this analysis. I'm going to recommend something that is so not comparable. Um, there's a new season of Nailed It out, and Nicole Byer always brings it.
5: She's so <laughs> you funny. Love Nicole so sure. That's a great Nicole show. Byer. Nailed It is yes. joy. It is so joyful. Yes.
2: Yes, Yes. and I'm honestly over the actual baking because the challenges are increasingly absurd. They'll be like, okay, you novice baker, we want you to build a leaning tower of pizza cake and then build the couch that is in the house. You have 45 minutes.
3: Like, that's just dumb.
2: But Nicole Byer, the host, she'll have these wonderful skits to move between segments that are nonsensical, almost Dada-esque. It's insane and crazy, and she's just hilarious. So her. She's a hoot. All right, they're telling us to get to the game. We're going to do it. Um, I'm so happy to have you both here for this game. It is called <laughs> Who Said That?
4: Who it's said
2: quite that? simple. Zach's who played that? before. Who said Ooh, has not. Said Zach, explain that? this game to Said.
4: So it's been a few years, but we're going to hear a clip of something that happened in the news this week, and we have right. to guess who said that. Okay. Right? Am I correct, yes. Sam? Yeah. Okay.
2: I mean, we're low-budget public radio, so I'm just going to read the clips. <laughs> I'm going oh, to read
5: it. the quotes <laughs> Also, like, we, don't don't we don't have any buzzers. We don't have any buzzers to games. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. All right.
2: All right. Here is the first quote. Tell me who said this. It is the child of a celebrity. The quote is: Then she gets to work making some more vagina eggs and candles, also vagina candles and vagina perfumes. Just everything vagina.
4: Um, that's about Gwyneth Paltrow. I was but I'm about to say that. Who would like, say
5: that? Yeah.
2: Who would say it? Doesn't Gwyneth Paltrow has a child named
5: Apple? Name? Yes, Apple? Yeah. Apple
2: is it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> now kind of got there together, but I think Saeed gets that point. Yes, yeah, Saeed does. Um, I'll give it so, to Saeed because I was like, it's great. Gwyneth okay. Paltrow. Thank you. So that know. quote comes from Apple Martin, child of Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow. And Apple was saying this in a TikTok that she made. Kind of roasting her mother's goop business, uh-huh. which from the start has been criticized for being pseudoscience. Wow. Um, but it was interesting because while making fun of Gwyneth Paltrow's goop, she was also pushing the product. Like the family's gonna stay getting their money. Yeah.
5: That's, That's, like, Kel- uh-huh. That's like what her fund is. Uh huh. That's like, was it Kellyanne Conway and her daughter? I see y'all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see y'all <laughs> yeah. playing both sides. Yes. Mm-hmm. I
2: will say, like, Gwyneth Paltrow always wins. You know, even after she had all of that critique over the, like, jade yoni eggs, the thing that right. were supposed to go up into your nethers, and everyone was like, don't do that. She didn't lose business. And I got to confess, full disclosure, I watched all six episodes of Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop Netflix show. Really?
4: I, you, I, only saw, I only saw the one in which she did mushrooms. She sent her staff to do mushrooms, actually.
2: That's some rich people stuff right there. Yeah. Oh, that's I'm going to send funny. you to do mushrooms. Yeah. And I also still feel like if I like, met Gwyneth Paltrow out in the world, she seems like she'd be pretty cool. Like, you wouldn't mind having a drink with Gwyneth Paltrow? Is that weird for me to say? <laughs> I just don't have a problem with this woman. I would. I think she
4: would get sloppy messy. I would would be down. And I love messy, rich white women. I'm really into them. So I'm down. I will drink her vegan wine with her and eat, you know, vegan oxtail, whatever she's serving. I will do.
2: Yeah. Saïd, you get that point. Let's go to the next quote. We are living in sci-fi times, but we are wearing masks from yesterday's movie. So I wanted to make a mask to fit the era that we're in. Will
5: I am? Yes, yes.
2: Tell. It. Okay, what is this story, Saeed? <laughs> because it I burned saw, me. No, I, I, knew saw, that.
5: I, I saw the article and I like had to put my phone away for a minute. Will I am and some <laughs> company are developing Honeywell. this. Actually, yeah, Honeywell. Actually, a really expensive new mask for like. For normal light and it like it lights up it's supposed to take calls it it does this <laughs> and that and it just it's a smart it looks ugly yeah. it sounds ugly
2: <laughs> it is a physical embodiment of those two or three really bad black eyed peas albums right
4: oh right. wow True. sam you were dragging <laughs> today i'm sorry I'm i got a few
2: words ha- for you i got a feeling oh <laughs> why don't we let that happen wow why don't we let that happen um but
4: oh, yeah. I, you know, I have to say, I'm kind of interested in this mask. All right. I love uh, a verse moment, you
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell y'all what all is in this mask before you go down that path, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> so... The New York Times had a big write up about this mask, which is called the Super Mask. But instead of an S at the front, it's an X, like Xpermask, Mask, whatever. Anyway, Gross. they said, quote from the Times, it's made of silicon with athletic mesh fabric on the sides. It fits snugly around the bottom half of the face and comes with three dual speed fans, a HEPA filtration system, noise canceling headphones, LED lights for nighttime, a rechargeable battery, and Bluetooth capability. You can play music. And take calls. Um, like, okay, but all we asked for was a vaccine. Like, literally, just 100%. Get the vaccine.
5: 100%. What are you?
2: <laughs> right? Uh... Also, just why? Why? Like, who needs this? Who mm-hmm. wants this? And as far as I'm concerned, will I am, you need to stay out of the public eye until we have a national day of atonement for I Gotta Feel It. <laughs> I Gotta Feel It. That is. I also want you to do a few rosaries over Boom Boom Pal. Another bad song. Man. <laughs> you remember Boom Boom, you
4: yes. remember Boom Boom Pal? You're taking us back, Sam. You're I know. So God. This is really showing our age, Sam. Because oh, like, the, the other day, a young person who was like maybe 1920, they're an influencer, said to me, because I used to be a BuzzFeed, like Side, we both have sent time at BuzzFeed in the past. She said to me, I know who you are. You know, I used to read BuzzFeed in middle school. (gasps) Girl. (laughs) I, I. Shake it. Shake it. So this Ooh, conversation buddy. is one of these things Gen Z will yeah. clock us for. So there we go. Damn.
2: Yeah. Whew. Okay. All right. All right. Last quote. Enough with the black eyed peas, or as I call them, the black eyed please. Oh my god! I'm dying. You did so done. Dumb, oh my god,
4: dad, Sam Sanders. Your poor listeners. They
5: listen to you every uh-huh. with these dad jokes. I swear. Listen,
2: this pandemic year, my dad joke capacity has increased threefold. That's real. It'd be like that. I
5: will say, as an aside, the other day I realized that, Sam, you were the oldest of the three of us, and I was like, that tracks. (laughs) I'm taking back your points.
2: Saeed, wow. you zero. I'm sorry. Zach, you're ahead. Zach oh, has yeah,
4: two points. Yeah, that was funny. Saeed just said, I'm choosing violence in this moment. Watch Ooh. me. <laughs>
2: Watch me. Oh, okay, last quote. Okay. Last quote. It's from a really strange viral article on the internet this week. The quote is, I can just get girls out of their shoes. It's a thing I can do. Oh. What was the article about? It was in the cut. And this, like, investigative reporter oh, mm, tracks down somebody.
5: Laura Bassett?
4: Yeah. Wow.
5: (laughs) She's the reporter who, like, found this guy who was screenshotting her feet whenever they would show up in her social media post and post them on a website. And she, like, tracked him down and interviewed him. Yes.
2: Yes. So this dude that his, his
4: name is his name is Robert. His name is Robert. Okay.
2: His name wow. is Robert Hamilton. And this week a reporter who published her piece in the cut, she tracked down the stranger, the random dude in New Jersey, who was taking screen grabs of pictures of her feet from her public Instagram and then uploading them to a site called Wikifeet. Wow. And they like talked for a long time. Mm-hmm. Did y'all
4: read this piece? That I did see this. It's all coming back to me. I love these types of pieces where people go and find like their trolls or the people like doing weird stuff with them on the internet and have a real conversation with them. Because they always lead to like these really insightful reasons why this person's being creepy. Most of the time. Sometimes people are just creepy. So just this guy was just creepy. a little
2: creepy. This guy was just a little creepy. And it's like, what's crazy is I posted this article online this week being like, oh my God. And so many women responded are were like, oh, you don't know? There are mm. so many men everywhere all the time who were just really creepily into our feet. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, a whole... Gosh, that sounds well, annoying. Well, Sam, also,
4: there's like a gay male version of this, too, on the internet. There's I was like about you to say, I was yeah. like, unfortunately.
2: Let me tell you. I read this article and then went and put on two pairs of socks. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Sam. If you're feeling
2: <laughs> bored and lonely, don't go to WikiFeet. Don't be screen grabbing strangers' feet. Don't get in fights on the internet. Just go watch The Nanny.
4: Yes. Go okay. Watch the nanny. Yes. <laughs> that's the anecdote. That's the thesis here that we're arriving back to full circle.
5: Yes. And because, as I told you, uh, the nanny is a bomb for all things, her character Fran Fine was a foot model
1: before <laughs> she
5: started working as that's part of her character's back foot. Full circle. She's so got everything circle. for everybody. We wow. love
2: a good callback. We love a good circle back. We uh, did it, Joe. to all involved in this game. Saeed, I think you won in spite of uh, shading me over my age. Screaming. 36, still turning tricks. It's all good. (laughs)
4: Emphasis (laughs) on tricks, honey.
2: Thanks again to Saeed Jones and Zach Stafford.
1: Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions.
3: Hello, Sam. This is Stephanie Schiller from Chicago, Illinois. The best thing that happened to me this week was it's my 70th birthday. And next month, if all goes as planned, I will receive my first Social Security check. Hi, Sam. My name is Erica. I'm calling from San Diego. The best thing that's happened to me this week, the best thing that's probably happened the entire year, is that my daughter was accepted to medical school this week, and she will be heading up to Idaho in July.
2: Hey, Sam. This is Kevin from Seattle. The best thing that happened to me this week is also the best thing that happened to me all year. I finished my grad program and I completed the certification process. I'm gonna be a teacher. Since August of 2019, I lost my mother, my father, and my wife, but some good things happened too. This week, I was surprised to discover my wife had arranged a luxury week long family vacation for me, my sons, and their families at a beautiful villa in the desert. Neither of my son's families were able to join me for this vacation, so I'm all by myself. But the good news is the reason the rest of the family couldn't join me. That's because of the best thing that happened this week. I was informed that not just one, but both of my son's wives are expecting babies again. So yours has been weird, but your podcast and especially these segments have brought me joy and hope. So thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.
2: Congrats and thank you to all those listeners you heard there, Jeff, Kevin, Erica, and Stephanie. Listeners, do not forget you can be a part of this segment yourself. If you want to share your best thing, you can do so at any point throughout any week. Just record yourself and send that voice memo to me via email. The email address is samsanders at npr.org. Samsanders at npr.org. All right. This week, the show was produced by Dene West, Andrea Gutierrez, and Sylvie Douglas. We had fact-checking help from Ida Porasad. Our intern is Liam McBain. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners... Till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.